Hello everyone, my name is Rizzi Arlinski and this is Young History, episode 155 on Afghanistan. The capital of the country is Kabul. The name Afghanistan means land of the Afghans, and the name Afghan originally referred to the Pashtun people, which originate from the ethnonym for the Afghan people. The Pashtun are the most populous group in Afghanistan today, and this term was first used centuries ago, around the 4th or 5th century CE, when it was Chinese writers that recorded events that involved the Pashtun that they called the Afghans. Some facts for you guys is that Afghanistan has one of the fastest growing populations in the world, and by 2040 this nation will be more populous than both Canada and Poland by most predictions. The capital Kabul has an unknown construction date, but modern archaeologists believe the city has been continuously inhabited for 3,000 years. Buzashi, a traditional equestrian sport, is a national sport of Afghanistan. It involves horse-mounted players who compete to grab a dead goat and carry it to a designated scoring area. This sport shows how Mongol, nomadic, and Pashtun culture has shaped into one in Afghanistan. Another one is that Afghan weddings are very elaborate affairs. They often last several days and involve a bunch of various customs and rituals. This may include the engagement ceremonies, the henna nights, and traditional dances such as the atan. During the henna nights, the groom is supposed to wear traditional Afghan shirts, and pants, known as jami, with headgear, known as lungi. While the groom adorns that, musicians play music, and people enjoy atan dancing. Atan is the national dance of Afghanistan and is a form of traditional Pashtun tribal practices. Pashtun wali is the traditional code of conduct followed by the Pashtun people. It emphasizes concepts such as hospitality, which is known as milmastia, honor, which is namus, and revenge, which is badal. The Pashtun the Pashtun Wali is likely the reason that travelers tend to regard Afghanistan as one of the most welcoming and hospitable places in the world. So with that being said, I don't want to dilly-dally anymore. Let's get right into this history and let's learn about Afghanistan. So speaking of, my name is Reese Garlinski, this is Young History, and this is Afghanistan. Hope you guys enjoy. Our origins begin between 3000 and 2000 BC, when urban centers for early Iranian and Afghan peoples started to appear. These civilizations traded with the famed Indus River Valley civilization, and Shortagui was a city in the borders of modern Afghanistan that seemed to be part of the Indus Ravel architectural group. Bactria is the Greek term used to describe northern Afghanistan in the ancient period, and we still accept that term today as a way to describe the northern provinces of Afghanistan. From 2300 to 1700 BC, there was a civilization near Bactria that specialized in craft figures and more. And then we see the arrival of a very influential group known as the Medes. The Medes came from the Median Empire and launched an invasion into Afghanistan from northern Iran. The control of the Medes was established in the region and the first Pashtun civilization started to pop up. One of them was obviously Kabul, which was established at some point in this period and has continuously been inhabited ever since. Of course, it wasn't known as Kabul at the time, but it, the basis of the city we know there today was absolutely from this moment. After decades of instability, the Afghan region was taken over by Darius I of Achaemenid Persia around 515 BC. 
Bactrians of northern Afghanistan were recruited into the Persian army and fought in the wars against Greece. Achaemenid Persia split its empire into satrapies, which are kind of like provinces. Zoroastrianism, also known as Betin, was originally a Persian religion, one of the world's oldest organized faiths, and it is based on the teachings of the Avesta and the Iranian prophet Zoroaster. It likely started in Afghanistan because this is where Zoroastra most likely lived and died. But then we get into some more commonly known history. Alexander the Great made his march across Persia in 323 BC. He would eventually cross the path of the northern Afghan Bactrians. Many reports suggested that some of the hardest battles Alexander had to fight occurred against the Bactrians. During the time of the Macedonian Empire, Greek influence found its way into the land, and there was an agreement of sorts made between the ruling dynasty and India with the empire. Most of Afghanistan was partitioned off to India, and because of this, there was a lot of Buddhist influence in Afghanistan. Upon his death, Alexander that is, the empire was split between his four great generals. The region that holds Afghanistan was known as the Seleucid Empire. Greek influence found a comfortable home in Afghanistan. Even today, Corinthian pillars, statues of Greek deities, and architecture like the Parthenon can be seen in Afghanistan. As time went on, the Seleucid Empire was weakened by divisions and it ended up conquered by the Endo-Scythian Empire out of India. The Endo-Scythian Empire was made up of Iranian peoples practicing a nomadic lifestyle. It didn't last long though, as Parthian Persia united as a major power in the Middle East and inherited control of Afghanistan. However, this did not last, and it would actually be the Indo-Parthian kingdom that came in to conquer the land next. The royal family in this eastern part of the Parthian Empire was known as the Suvarans. They became increasingly important in trade across the region, which gave them a sense of pride and desire for independence. Because of this, they actually succeeded from the Parthian Empire to create the Suran Kingdom, which is more commonly known as the Indo-Parthian Kingdom. The Indo-Parthian Kingdom ruled this region from about 12 BC until 130 CE. The kingdom was most famous for its creation of Greco-Buddhist art that came from centuries of Greek and Buddhist influence. And then there was the Uezi. Get this, they were Caucasian Western Chinese people. Yes, this is a group of Caucasians that came from those mountains in the western part of China despite the location so far east, which was something that shocked a lot of historians as we continued to uncover this. Of course it wasn't me, but you know what I mean. And the Uezi actually pushed out of Western China because they were fleeing another Western Chinese Caucasian group and they ended up settling in Afghanistan. They rose to dominance because of their war culture and established the Kushan Empire. This empire lasted from 30 to 375 CE. At its peak, this empire reached from northern Afghanistan all the way down to central India. It would actually be the Kushan it would actually be the Kushan kings that brought Buddhist culture to China via trade on the Silk Road. The Kushan were unique because they worshipped both Buddhist ideals and Greek gods. The Kushan Empire was also known for its trade cities, greater part of the world. It was at a central point between the Eurasian steppes and the Western world. Therefore, there was a ridiculous amount of fine goods from the greater Eurasian landmass passing through this area. In 225, the Kushan Empire split in two. The western half was conquered by the Sassanid Persians. The Sassanids were eventually defeated by the Huna people. The Huna controlled Afghanistan for a few centuries, but were ultimately defeated by the Sassanid Persians once again in 565. The rule of Sassanid Persia this time brought even more Persian culture to the land and brought the first time of stability in ages. Nonetheless, stability would not remain in Afghanistan for long, because in 642, the Arabs invaded. There would be a 150-year-long struggle between the invading Arabs and the Afghan occupants. But by the end of the battles, Arab control was established and Islam was introduced. Despite all the Arabic and Islamic influence, Persian culture was still ever-present in the Afghan nation. Until the 1200s, different major Arab caliphates took control of the lands 
that we are studying today. This included the Abbasid and Rashidun, among many more or less famous ones. Throughout this period, the Zoroastrian members in the Afghan community became increasingly hard to repress by the Islamic caliphates. No matter which caliphate was in power, there was always a heavy resistance to be found in the mountains of the Afghans. It would not be until close to the year 1000 that Islam would be fully accepted as the religion of the Afghans. However, since this point, Islam has defined the culture here for over a millennia. Next was the Gurid Sultanate. It was a small sultanate established around 879 near Afghanistan. It would not be until 1163 CE that things started to shift because the Sultan Giyath al-Din Muhammad took power. He led massive expansionist efforts across the region, including ones into Afghanistan. At its peak, the Sultanate reached from the Iranian Plateau to the Bay of Bengal. However, after the death of the Great Sultan, instability would follow the Sultanate. Over the next hundred years, there would be a lot of back and forth over which empire should take power in the Afghan region. The Khwarazmian Empire was one of the powers that moved in as the Sultanates fell. But all of this would kind of be tossed away when Genghis Khan led the famous Mongol invasions of 1219. The Mongols destroyed cities and slaughtered people by the thousands. The Mongol Empire was established and dominated the region. After the death of Genghis Khan, the Mongols took power in Afghanistan. During this time, plague hit and actually killed most of the royal Mongol family. This created instability, which left the region vulnerable for greater invasion. And that's when we see Tamur or Tamerlane. He was a distant relative of Genghis Khan that was also of Turkish descent. He was most influential in the late 1300s. He led a brutal conquest across most of Central Asia and parts of the Middle East. He conquered Afghanistan towards the end of the 1300s and left absolute destruction in his path. He is said to have been even more brutal than the Mongol forebearers that came a hundred years before. It would only be about a hundred years after establishing the Timurid Empire that it would fall into infighting and instability. And as you can imagine, this left it very vulnerable to invasions from other powers. Once the empire actually fell apart, the land was split up between local powers, namely the Khanate of Bukhara, Mughal India, and the Safavid Persians. They all controlled parts of Afghanistan from 1500 to 1700. In 1709, the Pashtun Hotak dynasty carved out its own land within the Safavid region. They defeated many Persian satraps and carved out an empire, which was set to challenge anyone that dared to challenge it. In 1722, Muhammad Hotak, an Afghan war commander, united the Afghan forces into a great army. This army was actually able to conquer most of Persia. However, only a few years after this, the legendary Persian commander, Nadir Shah, retaliated and defeated the Afghans. But after Nadir Shah died, things did not go as smoothly as planned for the Persians. Ahmed Shah Durrani, who was a Pashtun commander under Nadir Shah, was selected as king of Afghanistan. The Durrani Empire, which he began, is considered the basis for modern Afghanistan, and Ahmad Shah is considered the forefather to the Afghans. He established the empire after a somewhat successful conquest of India. During this conquest, he sacked Delhi and destroyed the Golden Temple of the Sikhs. After Ahmed Shah died, the Durrani Empire weakened and had to deal with strong enemies on all sides. The empire also lost a major trade partner in China when relations went sour. Both Persia in the west and Sikhs to the east wanted a piece of the Afghan kingdom, which had wronged them before. They both took land from Afghanistan and reduced it to almost its modern borders. Dost Muhammad Khan overthrew the Durrani Empire and founded the Emirate of Afghanistan in 1823. And the use of that name was very intentional because there had been so much ethnic pride and clashes between different groups that the idea of creating Afghanistan, which is just land of the Afghans, rather than a land that is specific to one people group, 
that can't be brought into this national term, it seemed like it was a much better move. Following this, the British were overly concerned that Russia might invade Afghanistan in the 1830s, so they invaded themselves. The British were able to march in without much resistance and occupy the area of major cities. However, as British troops were moved back to India, those that remained were ambushed by Afghans defending their land from the rural parts. The efficiency of the Afghan warriors shocked Britain and her allies. Once the forces were pushed out, Dost Muhammad Khan was made king of Afghanistan once again. Britain returned almost four years later to get their get back, and this started the Anglo-Afghan War of 1878. By 1880, the British had won the conflict and established forced relations with Afghanistan. The skilled guerrilla warfare from the Afghans caused a prolonged war with many casualties on both sides, but this forced amicable negotiations. Instead of adding Afghanistan to the British Empire, they had the region act as a buffer state between British India and Russia. Afghanistan became a protectorate of the British Empire, but maintained internal autonomy. The British control over foreign relations was widely unaccepted by Afghans. The resistance to British intervention culminated in the Afghan invasion of British India in 1919. Over 100,000 Afghans marched and caused widespread destruction to highlight their anger at the British plight. The battle was bloody, but in the end, a stalemate occurred. Negotiations were held, and there would be big changes that come. Afghanistan was able to fully gain independence with a clause that they would not attack British-held lands. The British agreed to support the international recognition of independent Afghanistan in order to secure peace. The official independence for Afghanistan was declared on August 19, 1919. Independent Afghanistan was led by a more liberal move towards reform. Many politicians advocated for a secular system that was based on education. Some rights were expanded to women, and slavery was officially abolished. Things were going well until a proposed reform that would ban burqas went live. Tribal leaders of traditional societies in the rural parts of the countries revolted against the government for this reform. The resistance from traditional societies forced many kings to step down and are blamed for the assassination of other kings. Of course, this bounces back to how important faith and tradition is to people in general, but in this country, we see that a lot, where there's a lot of clashes because of that. In 1926, Afghanistan became a kingdom once again, as a move towards the monarchy seemed the most right. People needed to be united, and there was one thing everyone could unite under, the same king. Around this time, the USSR offered to aid Afghanistan for development. Afghanistan happily accepted its money and used it on infrastructure, airports, and roads. In 1973, Dawood Khan abolished the monarchy when he overthrew his brother in a bloodless coup. He became the first president and established the Republic of Afghanistan. Dawood was assassinated alongside much of his family in the 1978, in 1978 by Hafizullah Amin. Amin ended up assassinated by the KGB when he was accused of being an enemy of the state. In the same year was the Saar Revolution, which brought communist power into the government of Afghanistan, which forced the creation of the Democratic People's Republic of Afghanistan. This communist entity lasted from 1978 until 1992. Communist rule was rejected by the heavily Muslim population because the Soviet idea was to reduce traditional practices and religious influence. A strong resistance emerged against the USSR. There were harsh divisions in the country and started a civil war of sorts. Internal divisions over how to run Afghanistan caused the Soviets to intervene. The USSR pushed into Kabul and placed the pro-Soviet politician Babrak Kamal in power, and this caused fighting to stop for a while. But, I say for a while, to be a little generous, it took no time at all for this action by the Soviets to be met with a stark resistance, which started the Afghan-Soviet War. Afghan rebels that once fought on opposite sides now united into the Mujahideen, who used countryside bases to battle the Soviet force. 
the Soviets held prominent cities. The conflict went on for 10 years, prolonged by the influence of other nations. In support of the rebels, Pakistan sent weapons, Saudi Arabia sent money, and the U.S. trained troops. The Soviets eventually withdrew in 1989 because of how strong the resistance was for all rural parts of the country, not in cities. This has been the definition of the history of this nation for year over year over year because Afghanistan and its people mastered this tactic. The guerrilla tactics, the mountain fighting, the rural fighting, because the cities, all cities are much more easy to look at on a map and plan which way an enemy is going to go or if you are the enemy to plot on. But when it's just countryside and you have to figure it out, the people who live there are going to dominate you. And that's what happened here. And even though the Soviets eventually withdrew in 1989, there would be no peace in Afghanistan. By the end of the conflict, there had been at least 275,000 people killed, over 1 million Afghans exiled from the country, and 2 million more displaced. Despite the end of the war with the Soviets, there was now a great division within Afghanistan. Issues over how the post-Soviet nation should be ran was at the forefront of reasoning this new civil war. In 1994, Omar was a mullah, which was a spiritual leader and teacher in Muslim schools called madrasas. Omar fought in the war against the Soviets, so he was experienced with the war effort. He led a band of students against the Mujahideen forces who had continued to terrorize his area near Singasar. Even though deciding who was the good guy in this war is impossible and I will do no such thing, it was undeniable that both sides were causing violence and fighting nationwide. So Mohammed Omar is just one of the many people that was sick of it and he actually made a very big impact. Omar and his students pushed the Mujahideen out of their town then pushed them all the way out of Kandahar city. As this group expanded, it became known as the Taliban, which means student in the Afghan language of Pashto. The Taliban rose to prominence based on its strong Afghan nationalist ideas and traditional Muslim practices. However, the Taliban gained support among Afghan people because the regions that the Taliban controlled were the only ones that had experienced real peace in over a decade. The mullahs were a major part of the Taliban's success because of how heavily mullahs were regarded with teaching true Islam. The majority of Pashtuns inhabited the southern part of Afghanistan, which was very easy for the Taliban to rally. The Taliban also uniquely made a lot of money because it controlled major passageways of the nation. For example, one of the major highways that passes roughly east to west through Afghanistan saw a heavy increase in tolls in order to fund the Taliban effort. On top of this, they used the widespread poppy fields to illegally export heroin and heroin goods in massive amounts. And today, the largest export that is not legal, but is still the largest export in Afghanistan, is the export of heroin. The Taliban were also supported by the government of Pakistan, who sent weapons and funding. With all the support, they eventually invaded Kabul and took it over in 1996. The Taliban established control across the country, and a strict system based on Sharia law was enacted nationwide. In 1996, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan was established. Taliban rule saw a very aggressive change. Buddhist monuments and land were destroyed by the radical religious group that entirely believed Islam was the only way to live one's life. The new government was entirely ran by Taliban allies and members. They restricted cultural customs and placed mandated beard growth on some men and also mandated what could be worn. It was also women that had to endure the most amount of force change. The Taliban instituted laws that prevented women from traveling without a male relative, getting an education on their own, or reading texts considered inflammatory by the government. This is one of the most controversial things about the Taliban because even though it found a lot of support among Afghan people, it was this strict adherence to Islam and strict adherence to their government being the best that marks them as restrictive in many people's view of their history. 
During the same time was the rise of Al-Qaeda, who rose in Afghanistan under main belief that Western societies wanted to end Islam. Al-Qaeda also found support in the religious community for their strict adherence and defense of Islam. Osama bin Laden, who was a fighter in the war against the Soviets that was trained by the U.S., ended up rising to be the leader of Al-Qaeda. He also planned and coordinated the 9-11 attacks in New York City. In retaliation for this, the United States invaded Afghanistan with the help of Mujahideen leaders and toppled the Taliban regime, but bin Laden fled to Pakistan. The remaining Taliban surrendered because of how efficient the United States force was, but they were not given any amnesty. Instead of any peace or negotiation being pursued and a move towards pursuing bin Laden being the next step, there was a lot of aggressiveness and the route was taken by W. Bush and subsequent presidents that anyone who was in the Taliban or any of those organizations was a permanent enemy of the United States. So this meant there was now going to be a long-term investment of time and war from, a, from the United States into Afghanistan. And once most of those Taliban leaders surrendered, the few that weren't a part of the surrendering or getting captured fled into Pakistan. And it caused many fighters to disperse themselves throughout the mountains of Afghanistan. The end of Taliban rule saw the creation of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan by the UN and the US in 2004. Millions of dollars were fueled into the country in hopes to turn it into a democracy. Education, infrastructure, healthcare, and more were completely turned around, and the economy was at its strongest point it had been in decades. However, the US refused to give up its fierce search of Taliban and other similar groups. While this was going on, issues arose with the Mujahideen, who were heavily funded by the U.S. to challenge the Taliban, but ended up embezzling funds for themselves and enacting their own rules in rural areas of the country. The Taliban continued to recruit, but by this time, they found success in recruiting people outside of just Pashtun areas. Uzbeks, Turkmen, Tajiks, and other groups living in Afghanistan united to the Taliban cause. Almost everyone lived in the rural parts of Afghanistan and had lost a relative to one of the bombing brigades by the United States. Up until 2009, Taliban forces continued to expand control across parts of the country, but the stronghold of it was clearly the rural parts of the nation. In 2011, Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden in an Operation Neptune Spear at his compound in Pakistan. The U.S. occupied the nation, but despite this, the U.S. were still not done or ready to give up their effort in Afghanistan. They wanted their, the people at the head of the military and the government in the U.S. wanted there to be a definitive show of effort in Afghanistan because since Osama bin Laden was killed in, in Pakistan, there needed to be something else that happens in order for Afghanistan to be worth it. So the U.S. occupied this nation for nearly 20 years. In that time, they tried to train a force to resist the Taliban, but the Afghan army did not pan out and was clearly inferior to the Taliban, which ended up getting proven in the not-so-distant future. In the early 2020s, negotiations were made with the Taliban to see the U.S. leave Afghanistan permanently, because no matter how bad the fighting was, and no matter how much effort the U.S. made, eliminating all the Taliban was not going to happen, and on top of it, the expansion of the Taliban was not ending because the U.S. was kind of just doing a negative feedback loop. As they continued to spread their attacks on the Taliban, more innocent people would die, which led to more Taliban recruits joining up with them obviously in order to resist the United States. But the U.S. did get the Taliban to agree that there would be a U.S. intervention-free Afghanistan if al-Qaeda and ISIS were prevented from spreading in the country. Once the U.S. withdrawal became official, it took just days for the Taliban to reestablish control of Kabul and the entire nation. The Taliban were met with absolutely no resistance and have faced none since. And that force of Afghan fighters that the U.S. tried to train for 
nearly 20 years was completely ineffective had nothing on the taliban fighters who not only were fighting with more passion but were fighting with much much more experience and that gets us to the present where the taliban dominate any and all politics in afghanistan the regime is much less restrictive than it was in the past but there are still many very traditional and repressive doctrines in place afghanistan might be the most repressive country in central asia when it comes to women Women are commonly forced to wear burqas, which is a traditional Muslim outfit that covers everything except for a slit near the eyes. And on top of this, there is almost no rights at all for women in the nation because of a very, very strict adherence to Islam. This also extends to anybody who is homosexual because of the traditional beliefs that see them as outlaws in the Islamic system. The economy of Afghanistan is in complete struggle because of the fact that the Taliban government does not have any allies. There was a lot of economic growth back when the U.S. was heavily involved in the nation, but in the years since, the end of occupation has seen the economy take a huge nosedive. The cost of living is extremely high in this nation, and many people who live in Afghanistan end up having a very big fear over what is to come next. However, that is not how I'm going to leave this episode, because when I get to the end of these, I always have to do a kind of takeaway or a mindset that you can gain from the history of this country. And with Afghanistan... That's very clear. You are on your own, so earn your independence. Afghanistan has represented independence, resistance, and pride for literal centuries. No matter who is in power in Afghanistan, there was always a passionate resistance ready to challenge whoever that theoretical power was. In modern history, the Soviets and the British have both had a taste of the fiery passion of the Afghans. And even up through today, no matter how you feel about these groups, you cannot deny the power of a group that we call the Taliban of students rising up to defend what they consider their home. The country that they love the same way we love ours, they stood up and fought for it. Of course, there's been nastiness from the Taliban. There's been awful rules and laws enacted, but it does not change the fact that the Taliban have tried very hard to be as Afghanistan pro as possible, no matter what that looks like. And I'm the farthest thing from a supporter of this group, but nonetheless, you do have to acknowledge their origins, why they started, and how much they have had to persevere few because of the rest of the world getting involved in their country. But with that being said, I can apply that to my life, and I say you should apply it to yours. There's always going to be something trying to restrict your independence. That's going to come in many facets, many different ways. People will try and pull you off the career you want because it isn't financially exhilarating. People will pull, try and pull you out of a relationship because of lust and trying to tempt you into other things. There will be up and downs, back and forths, all different kinds of things that could end up in your life. So get your independence. The best way to do you and to hold on tightly to who you are is to fight for an independent version of you so that you're free from oppression from a parent or a partner or a job, free from oppression and restriction from anyone or any environment that brings you down. Whatever that looks like for you, you have to go and fight for it. And if that means ending a relationship, changing your job, changing schools, switching up what kind of relationship you have with your parents, whatever that is, there's a way to get out of it. And there's going to be nothing more freeing for you or what I consider better for you overall than getting that true independence from something that is holding you back so heavily. And that is going to be all for me. So this country has a lot of history going back thousands of years and the continued inhabitation and culture is also unique. But the past 20 years have seen this country at the wrong end of the stick because of the United States, because of a few bad actors that were in Afghanistan for a time causing a lot of chaos and bringing a lot of innocent people down with them. So both sides, the U.S. and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, all of them have just had so much up and down, have done nasty things here. But nonetheless, this country is very storied and 
It's just a different one. I'm sorry for my lack of confidence in saying things, but it's just hard to see a nation that's been around so long and have such a strong culture and strong people go through as much as this country's gone through. But as of today, this nation is very much controlled by the Taliban, but that has a split support. Some people feel this is the most passionate way to live, and other people feel and other people feel it is very restrictive. So however you feel about it, that is Afghanistan, and that is all for me. So I'm very glad you guys listened. I'm very glad you guys came to check this one out. I know it's a, I feel like it's always a, kind of like a controversial one to post about this country when you're in the U.S., but we're here because the best thing we can do is just give everyone perspective on the people of the countries of the world, which is what I'm trying to do. So I really hope you guys enjoyed. Hope you got something out of it. Hope you got something out of the lesson. But whatever it was, you were here, and that means the world to me. So... For the final time today, my name is Reese Karlinski, this is Young History, and that episode there, that was Afghanistan. You have a good one, guys.